Hi everyone and welcome to Open Door Philosophy, a podcast where a high school philosophy teacher, that's me, and his former student who's currently studying philosophy in college, that's me, unpack a variety of big philosophical concepts in an understandable way, all towards the purpose of living a good life. Welcome to episode 20, where we discuss a famous American philosophical movement called Transcendentalism. But of course, before all of that, we gotta know what the big catch-up is. So, Andrew... Let's catch up. How's everything in your world? So just yesterday, I finished up my set, which I've been saying um, I would take for the past six months of this podcast, but I finally got it done with yesterday, so I was so, so, so excited to be done. Might take it one more time just, just, for, just for giggles, but it feels nice getting that done. And then this weekend, we have a midterm recess, so... I'm going to be really just looking forward to relaxing and having a good time with that. Mr. Parsons, how how's your swimming been going? Oh, you know, just call me Michael Phelps. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I am a powerhouse in the pool. People walk by and see me swim and they think, my God, how is that man not an Olympian? <laughs> But it's going fine. I'm getting exercise. That's important. <laughs> uh, I have learned to breathe well, though. So so really? that's good. Uh, I think that's half the challenge is learning how to breathe well. Because, you know, just that repetition of pulling your head out of water, getting enough breath and all that sort of business. So, yeah. Yeah. All that's good. So I'm a mighty swimmer. How's everything else? How's school? and um, everything? Oh, yeah. So So just as you're having your sort of fall break here. Uh, unfortunately, my district does not have a fall break, but uh, <laughs> but we did just finish the first quarter of the year. So so a quarter done, and we had homecoming last week, which is always good fun. Oh no, the cowbells, <laughs> the moms for 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 uh, for listeners outside of Texas, you should really Google Texas homecoming moms and just it's awful, just be in wonder at the <laughs> variety of of life that humans create and traditions and stuff yeah and so and one something else i wanted to ask you about i i've been been seeing your podcast been come up for your is it the curiosity manifold podcast so how's that going oh yeah it's going great episode two is out uh just wrapped up episode three I hope everyone wants to go out and check it out it's called curiosity manifold wherever you listen to podcasts it really focused, they're just like short personal essays on kind of the, the wonder of existence, you know, through, through our daily lives that we overlook, you know, and, and really that's kind of a nice segue into transcendentalism because there was a lot of focus on the here and the now and the things that we, the things that we overlook in life. So anyway, yeah, check it out, Curiosity Manifold, wherever you listen to podcasts. <laughs> All right, guys. So our main topic today is is one that I really like. Uh, transcendentalism is a is a philosophy or a way of thinking that really appeals to me on a lot of levels. So I've been anxious to talk about it on this podcast, and I can't believe we've gone twenty episodes without it. But nonetheless, here we are. So we're going to talk about this. I, I would well, we'll debate as to whether or not it can be called a, a uni uniquely American philosophy. But uh, mm -hmm. before we get going with that, 
and you'll see how this all ties in. Andrew, I have a question for you. Sure. Have you ever felt connected with something larger or, or like bigger than yourself? I think so. I think there's there's been a few times in my life when I've, you know, if it's, if it's either part of kind of a, a group or something like that, a unit, society, even when I'm going out and, and taking, um, seeing something really crazy. I remember this one time I, I was up on a I don't want, I don't want to segue into into this episode but I remember this one time that I was on this I was in Vermont and it's very beautiful up there it was my first time I think ever going in kind of actual nature outside of kind of these Texas kind of tree parks or whatever so it was the first time ever and I was on top of kind of like this mountain or something and it was just the craziest thing ever and it was I don't know. I don't know how to describe it, but I, I think it was uh, one of the, the times in my life where I definitely felt like I was connected to something more than myself. Well, I think that's perfect, actually. <laughs> and that's exactly what the transcendentalists would talk about. This idea that you f- you feel something, you feel connected to, to something. The transcendentalists would, of course, call that God. But you feel connected to something bigger than yourself that you can't quite describe, right? It's a feeling that kind of defies quantification, right? Mm. Yeah. So, so transcendentalism, like, w- let, let's set it in its historical context, and then we'll talk about it from kind of a, a philosophical and maybe even literary standpoint. W- one of the things I kind of want to point out here at the beginning is, and, and keep this in mind as we go through all of this. You know, some people will say that transcendentalism really isn't a, a philosophy. At least it's not a fully fleshed out philosophy that involves like a, a moral system. But it's more so a, a, a revolution in thought. So keep that in mind as, as, as we talk about all this sort of stuff. You might be familiar with transcendentalism from maybe high school or college. If you took any American literature course, you probably ran into Ralph Waldo Emerson and or Henry David Thoreau were both of them. And they would be labeled under this category that today we call transcendentalism. And that was a term that they actually used during that time. They had a organization or a club that they called the Transcendentalist Club, which included Ralph Waldo Emerson and a number of other literary minds at the time, uh, Margaret Fuller, um, some other Writers during the time, like Nathaniel Hawthorne, uh, Emily Dickinson, sometimes are associated with Mm -hmm. the transcendentalist movement. And so transcendentalism was sort of a literary movement, but it was also a a movement in thought. And so in some ways, you can't talk about transcendentalism as opposed to what came before transcendentalism. But historically, this movement happened in the Northeast of United States, so in the Boston Concord area is kind of where the epicenter was, and it took place in the very early 19th century, probably up until, say, maybe the Civil War. So from like the 18, well, it's hard to pinpoint a, a specific time when it started, but but early early 19th century to about the beginning of the Civil War. So, Andrew, to, to talk about and, and set this in its sort of history in in the history of thought 
let's discuss for a minute what rationalism and, and what the age of reason was, perhaps even the Enlightenment, if we use that term, uh, that was going on in Europe in the 18th century. Yeah, so the Age of Enlightenment, I think it's also called the Age of Reason. It was kind of a, a philosophical philosophical revolution, I'd say, in the 18th century or so. Yeah, we I think we referred to it as the Enlightenment in high school. That's that's kind of how I remember it. But it was basically this movement where um, we're kind of rejecting some previous ideas on how to become happy and focusing them more on reason. So a big part of the enlightenment was, um, you know, you're going to learn about the world. You're, you're going to, I guess their epistemology focused on using your senses instead of other ways of knowing, which, which they're kind of rejecting in this time. And that's how they're going to be building the knowledge about them around the world. So a really famous philosopher that we talked about, who I think is kind of known to have spurned the Enlightenment was uh, Descartes. So we talked about him way back at the beginning of this podcast. So uh, this is a plug for episode two or three or something. But yeah, so it's a, this really big focus on building ideas, um, building your perception of the world, building how you're going to be happy, building political political philosophy too on on reason and and getting that reason from your sensory experience. Yeah, that's a good summary of it. We so so in a way transcendentalism was a reaction to all of that. So there are some historians will that will use an analogy of a pendulum swing uh and and some people take issue with that particular analogy, but just as the age of reason or the enlightenment was a reaction to say more mystical explanations of the universe in the Middle Ages and existence in the Middle Ages, the pendulum swung heavily towards rationalism and objectivism. And when we have movements like the scientific revolution and the enlightenment, which all fall under what some people call the age of reason, things just got hyper-rational by the time we get to the very early 19th century. And so we begin to see the pendulum swing back the other direction and thinkers, at least in the United States, although certainly it happened in Europe as well, embrace a new type of perspective on interpreting existence. And in America, it gets called transcendentalism. In Europe, closely associated with it, it would be something called romanticism. In romanticism, especially in England, but also in Germany, you had some very famous writers such as Williams Wordsworth, Goethe, Samuel Taylor Coleridge. They were part of this romantic movement. And the romantic movement, very similar to transcendentalism, had a great emphasis on the role of emotion in your life. I think it was Pascal that said, what reason weaves by passion is undone. And so there was just a greater emphasis on passion and moving away from hyper-rationalism. I want to read a, a short excerpt from the poem Tables Turned by Williams Wordsworth to, to emphasize this transition. So Table's Turn starts out with this in its first stanza. Up, up, my friends, and quit your books. Oh, surely you'll grow double. Up, up, my friend, and clear your looks. Why all this toil and trouble? The sun above the mountain's head, a freshening luster mellow. Through all the long green fields has spread his first sweet evening yellow. Books, 
Tis a dull and endless strife. Come hear the woodland linnet. How sweet his music on my life. There's more wisdom in it. And so throughout the, uh, well, and let me read the, the final stanza. Enough of science and of art. Close up those barren leaves. Come forth and bring with you a heart that watches and receives. So the romantic and transcendentalist movement was a reactionary movement to rationalism and the age of reason. Up, up, my friends, and leave your books, right? <laughs> and so, but if we're le- leaving our books, then what are we going to in order to understand our place in the world? And that's to embrace the passion of living. And this is why transcendentalism in America really takes on a very different flavor than, say, romanticism. So much of European history, well, rather, so much of Europe was burdened by centuries of history and culture, whereas over in the United States, we had just begun building culture. And so there was a sort of freshness to American thought, and they take this idea of romanticism and it sort of morphs into transcendentalism. So I have a I have a quick question for you. I know you mentioned earlier that this was I think you mentioned this earlier at least that transcendentalism was kind of a a thing that was was it more in the northeast of the United States and kind of the New England area or was it kind of a kind of all spread around the US? It's interesting as a as a movement in its time and place, it was very Northeastern. But the ideas of transcendentalism really permeates a lot of American thought throughout the mm. 19th century. So as a movement, yes, very Northeastern. Ralph Waldo Emerson did like many lecture tours throughout the Northeast. So, so as an intellectual movement, yes, very, very Northeastern. Is there is there kind of a reason? I know that a lot of them, I could be, I, were they at Harvard? Where a lot of, was the Transcendentalism Club kind of in Harvard? Is there a reason that it was, was it tied to religion up there? Or was it tied to kind of, you know, Harvard was just a, a school that philosophers, you know, were at? And that's- Now that's a great question. Like you can't talk about transcendentalism without without referencing religion in some way. Um, and yes, Harvard had a lot to do with that. The Harvard Divinity School, which Ralph Waldo Emerson attended, at that time would be most closely associated, like its theology would have been most closely associated with what we would call Unitarianism, which is sort of a evolution of the Enlightenment view of Christianity, which some thinkers took, which we call deism. Boy, do I want to go into all that? (laughs) (laughs) Sorry. No, no, it's great. (laughs) Um, So the point of, I guess, without really getting into some of the beliefs of those particular religious perspectives, deism and Unitarianism, one of the big aspects of them was the rejection of hierarchy, the rejection of tradition, and the emphasis on individual interpretation. There's a little bit of Quakerness-ish in that. Quakerness-ish <laughs> in that. <laughs> so all that to say, Emerson, who was kind of, I don't know if I say he's the founder of transcendentalism, but he certainly was the person who was really driving hard in the early 19th century with organizing 
uh, thinkers around and, and promoting these ideals of transcendentalism. Uh, yeah, he, he graduated from the Harvard Divinity School and so was heavily influenced by Unitarianism. And so this has a lot to do with sort of a, a transcendentalism as like a reaction to tradition. Hmm. So think about, Andrew, like talk about tradition and hierarchy in European churches at this point mm. in history. Like, how would you typify that? I can talk a lot about this for sure. So I think there had been a long established tradition in religion, especially in the Catholic Church, which, I mean, I guess a lot of people could argue the Enlightenment was a pendulum reaction um, against. So that's something interesting. But I think um, definitely in a lot of those religions there, I think in Lutherism has a fair amount, not as much as Catholicism, but I could be wrong about that. But definitely the Catholicism, which was the big, big religion. I, I guess it's, it's all religion, but the big church dominant at the time, a lot of hierarchy um, in terms of You'd have your lay people, then your priests, then your deacons, then your cardinals. Well, I guess deacons aren't aren't really up there. I meant bishops, bishops, then cardinals. Then you, you know you had the pope, and everything was kind of flowing down in that direction. So, and you know that was pretty popular in Europe. I don't think it ever really took took roots in America that well. Yeah, and so when we think about the early religious establishments in the United States in the late 18th and early 19th centuries, they're really what historians called old world religions. In other words, they link back to Europe. So whether that was Catholicism or whether that was Anglicanism, which is the mm. Church of England, which is just as hierarchical as yep. the Catholic Church, um, or whether it was Methodism, which was an offshoot of Anglicanism, or which, so hierarchy there again, or whether it's Lutheranism, which, you know, some people joke and they call it Catholic light. You know, there was, there was a lot of, st- <laughs> there was a lot of structure, uh, and, and centuries of tradition, scriptural interpretation, doctrine, all that type of stuff that churchgoers had to adhere to. And when those churches moved to America without sort of, I guess you might call it the burden of, or the weight of tradition and centuries of that, that, they might have felt back in Europe, they didn't so much feel that in the United States. And so you do have religious movements like, like I said, Unitarianism, Quakerism, and, and especially down in the south of the United States, uh, this new movement that we might call evangelicalism and with the Second Great Awakening was going on. And so it was definitely a reaction to tradition. So whether that's religious tradition or whether that's political traditions as well. So it was a real movement of newness, of energy, of freshness. And so here's a, here's a quote from Emerson from his essay, Nature. He says, why should we grope among the dry bones of the past or put the living generation into masquerade out of all of its faded wardrobe? The sun shines also today. There is more wool and flax in the fields. There are new lands, new men, new thought. Let us demand our own works and laws and worship. So it really sort of typifies this idea of the reaction to or rejection of tradition. We're here in America. It's a new country. Let us be the masters of our own destiny. So was this kind of individualism, was that something 
kind of apparent in the the philosophy of transcendentalism is that kind of one of the key key tenets was um is there kind of a big push on on that front sometimes transcendentalism gets saddled with the term individualism and that comes from Emerson's and Thoreau's emphasis on what they called self-reliance. And self-reliance in and of itself is a very American-esque type feature, right? Being, uh, being able to, to go out there and do it on your own. Yep. But that being said, I don't think that's the interpretation you get when you read Self-Reliance by Emerson. It's not that there's an idea that I have to completely do all this on my own. And I really don't need anybody else. That's individualism. There's certainly a, an aspect of community with with the transcendentalist movement. But so self reliance in the in the terms of like you being self reliant in how you interpret your particular surroundings and beliefs, especially with say like again back to religion something like that. So it, it's kind of is is the idea that. It's not that we, you know, we can exist kind of by ourselves in that, in in the sense that, you know, we we don't need other people, but it's like we need to make our own opinions about things. We just can't conform to, we can't always conform to what society wants us to think. Yeah. In fact, in fact, the transcendentalists uh, really were not great fans of society. We see this <laughs> as a very strong theme throughout Emerson and Thoreau. I mean, Thoreau lived in a cabin in the woods for two years. I mean, we know he had some visitors and he went to town here and there, but like he got away from society as much as he could. And, and he wrote plenty of works that, that identifies the difficulties that society brings in terms of your authenticity as an individual and that it takes you further away from, from your own authenticity. Emerson has a lot to say about that as well. So it seems like you know, a rejection of society is a big point. Kind of not listening to tradition is another point. What would you say kind of a main, or are those kind of the main tenets of transcendentalism? Or is, is there kind of like an umbrella that stems off? Because I can kind of see that these points are, are somewhat connected. Oh, yeah, they're all very connected. I don't want to make out transcendentalism as like a movement based on what it's not rather than what it is. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so you know, obviously, we're rejecting we're rejecting a lot of things: rationalism, tradition, society. So if if we're rejecting all those things, then then what what are we embracing, right? Mm-hmm. So we're embracing authenticity. We're embracing the importance of experience and the individual's relation to that experience. And when it comes to sort of religious aspect, and here's something I can't believe I haven't brought up just yet, the emphasis on nature in the transcendentalists is enormous. Nature, and when I say nature, I mean as in like everything that is not human. So, you know, plants, trees, rocks, forests, rivers, all that stuff, mountains, meadows. So the emphasis on nature and what we gain from nature. Nature is going to be an opposite of society, right? Um, and we see we do, we see a bit of this rejection of society in, in light, some Enlightenment thinkers like Rousseau, but the transcendentalists fully embrace it. And to be connected with nature, to be out in nature, is going to help you become more authentic. 
because nature can provide to you almost a way of how to live. Because nature, this is kind of Taoist in a way, but also we see this echoed in Stoicism as well. Nature can be a teacher. In fact, again, I think it's William Wordsworth. He says, and it may be tables turned. He says, come forth into the light of things. Let nature be your teacher. So how about this, Andrew? I'll I'll throw this one at you. Uh, (laughs) In what ways can nature instruct us on how to live? Well, the first thing that comes to mind from a philosophical point is everything in nature is just doing what it's supposed to be doing. It's not it's not trying to be something that it can't be. It's not trying to, you know, a rock's not trying to be a bird. <laughs> that sounds kind of dumb, but I I think, you know, I think I don't know if that's a good example, but it's I what think it's I a great mean. example. A leaf is a leaf. It's not trying to be anything else. It's performing its function for the world in the way that it is. And I think, you know, I think that's something very observable in nature. And then kind of going back to my mountain analogy at the beginning, maybe it wasn't an analogy, but my mountain story, everything in nature is making up, I guess, all of those things functioning together is making something really beautiful. It's all working together. And I think humans can often learn kind of a a good amount from that. You know, I think we we often try so hard to not be what we're meant to be as humans. We're not performing our functions or we're trying to choose other things that we're not supposed to do. So I think that's a reminder when I go into nature. Yeah, I think those are great examples. Um, You know, the transcendentalist idea here is not too unlike some Eastern philosophies, whereas the more we let go of the ego, the more we are able to be our true selves. And so for the transcendentalists, being out in nature gets us away from society and society corrupts us. Society Mm. makes us do things that we wouldn't normally do, right? You know, we spend our time working in the shops as cobblers or blacksmiths or whatever, and that's great and all. Like to be industrious is good. Transcendentalists don't want you to just go be a hippie and live out in the woods and never do anything. Um, <laughs> but but too much society, and this was a concern in early 19th century, especially with the beginnings of the Industrial Revolution, too much society is not good. And so, so going to nature and getting away from society, we connect back with that part of us, right? Because we are a part of nature as well. We connect back with that part of us that nature can, can arise uh, within us, you know, a greater degree of authenticity and frankly, peace, right? And, and that's what so many philosophies of living are after is, is a tranquil mind, a mind that is at peace. And nature provides this for us. But there's a real religious aspect to transcendentalism as well with nature. And again, I don't want to delve too deeply into religious perspectives here, but for the transcendentalist, they are what you might call a pantheistic type of viewpoint. And, and that means that their idea of God is that he is not completely separate from us in another realm, another spiritual realm outside of this earthly realm that we live on. There's a bit of God in everything. There's a bit of God in the rocks. There's a bit of God in the bird, in the sky. 
the mountains. And there's a bit of God in you and me as well. And so when we go out into nature and we experience nature and we truly like push away all of the societal expectations uh, that comes with a person who lives in society, that the more we are in nature, the more we are connected with God and almost become God. Let me, uh, let, let me read another phrase from Emerson's Nature. And fr- from a mystical standpoint, and when I say mystical, I mean like branches of religious organizations that have a, a, a mystic tradition, like monks or hermits in Christianity, Sufis in Islam. So mystics believe that union with God is possible. But in order to achieve that, you really have to let go of a lot of things, a lot of your humanness, if you will, that comes from society. Anyway, here we go. I'll get to it. I promise. Here's the quote from Emerson from Nature. He says, to the attentive eye, standing on the bare ground, my head bathed in the blithe air and uplifted into infinite space, all mean egotism vanishes. I become a transparent eyeball. I am nothing. I see all. The currents of the universal being circulate through me. I am part or parcel of God. So this is what we call religious union, right? Uh, all his egoism vanishes. He, be, he says, I am nothing. I see all. The currents of the universal being circulate through me, right? So this is why it's called transcendentalism. The term transcend is to, to rise above, right? to elevate above. And so for the transcendentalist, from a religious perspective, being in nature not only brings you closer to God, but is really a gateway to God. What do you think about that, Andrew? Yeah, I mean, it seems like, this seems like the whole point of transcendentalism, like the whole goal of going away, being in nature and, and, and getting away from society, I guess, is to embrace God in this kind of way, to to be a part of God. So that that was, you were preemptively answering one of my questions that I had for you, which was, so what? Like, why are we going into, why are we going into nature? Why, why should we care what, if we're enveloped by society? So I guess this is, this is the fundamental point. If I, I could be wrong, of course, but it seems to me like this is the fundamental point that this is the goal. This is the end for a transcendentalist. They want to reach this this level of spirituality. Is is that correct? Well, you know what an end goal is is a really interesting <laughs> an interesting thought. I don't know what the end goal of transcendentalism is, except maybe to live in the most authentic way as possible, hmm. which is very existentialist. But in order to live as authentically as possible, you need to experience God in the way that well, in their view, is the most authentic way. But connected with authenticity is, is also the importance of experience. The transcendentalists had a, had a real emphasis on noticing what is around you. Another corruption of society is that you are so concerned about these human-created concerns that you're no longer noticing what's around you. The beauty of life. You mentioned beauty earlier. There is a there's an entire chapter in uh, Emerson's Nature just on beauty, uh, the beauty of nature and, and and what that is, what that what that 
can do and, and means for us. But experience and noticing, again, from, nat- from Emerson's nature, he says, to the attentive eye, each moment of the year has its own beauty. And in the same fields, it beholds every hour a picture which has never been seen before and which shall never be seen again. And if you think about experience, this is true, right? You can go into your backyard or your front yard or whatever, and depending on the time of year, depending on the the weather outside, whether it's cloudy, partly cloudy, rainy, sunny, the time of day, all of this stuff, everything around you, the picture, as he says, is constantly changing, and we don't notice these things. And so the more we are out in nature, the more we can notice these things. Thoreau talks about this as well. He's he's a bit more attentive than Emerson is. Emerson is very broad and abstract in his his language about nature, whereas whereas Thoreau in his book Walden gets very specific about nature. He's still noticing it, but I mean, you know, he's talking about looking at the bubbles and frozen ice and like measuring <laughs> them and talking about their diameter. It, it's almost really kind of like Plato versus Aristotle. Um, you know, Plato was always talking about these big abstract ideas out there in the ether, whereas Aristotle was like digging his hands into the dirt. And he's like, this is what I'm really seeing here. And, and Emerson and Thoreau are, are, are kind of that way. One of the reasons that I think transcendentalism is studied in, in high school, or at least the way that I remember it, was it was taught in my history classes is, is a, um, a movement that was kind of fighting along with abolitionists and for women's right to vote. Is this kind of a key point of the philosophy or were these figures just kind of, you know, were, were they just interested in these movements? Yeah, so this is really another interesting aspect, right? Like if you think about what's going on in America at the time, we are like in the decades leading up to the Civil War and abolitionism was uh, was a big movement in the Northeast. The transcendentalists were uh, were very much so against slavery. And, and in terms of, of women's suffrage, women's vote right, right to vote, they were very on board with this as well. I mean, it's a very, in a way, progressive movement in, in the time. And, and this goes back to that whole like rejecting, the, rejecting tradition. You know, why, why would we think women can't have the right to vote? Why would we think that uh, we should enslave Africans you know, and so they they just really questioned this. So it was a very egalitarian movement. I know that the the two big famous ones are Emerson and Thoreau, but we have other really significant women in the movement. Uh, Margaret Fuller was the mm. editor of the transcendentalist publication that they ran called The Dial, and mm. uh, she wrote um, A Woman in the Nineteenth Century, which is a very early and influential uh, women's feminist. Uh, paper. We actually read that in my class. Ralph Waldo Emerson was very inspired by his aunt, Mary Moody, who knew Shakespeare, who who could quote Shakespeare and Socrates and Plato and, and all the great thinkers. You also had Elizabeth Palmer Peabody, who was very involved, and I haven't touched on this, uh, American education. She was very involved in the, uh, in the promoters of like bringing the kindergarten movement to the United States, and she was a big promoter of indigenous rights. So, uh, so not only African American slaves, but Native American populations as well. Uh, she was heavily involved in the transcendentalist movement, and she was married to the educator Horace Mann, which that may be a familiar name to a lot of people. 
Yeah, you may have also heard of Louisa May Alcott, who is a big transcendentalist transcendentalist figure. Her her family's experience was when her her father attempted to establish a, a utopian community, and uh, and there was a Fuller School that was that was founded on. I'm not a Fuller School, uh, an Alcott School that was founded on a lot of transcendentalist ideas. Uh, transcendentalism was was tried out in sort of educational circles as well at a elementary and high school level. So there was a lot of like, you know, whether we're trying to create you no know, utopian societies or communities or new educational systems or rights around women being able to vote and African and American indigenous rights and all this sort of stuff, like it was a very energetic and progressive movement. And certainly comes to circling back to religion, it was very religiously progressive as well. A lot of traditional religious uh, organizations really condemned uh, transcendentalism because it, it it almost almost went entirely contrary to what religious teaching was at the time, uh, especially in view of like doctrinal issues like the Trinity and what is the nature of Christ and and all of those kind of things. So anyway, yeah, it was a very uh, a very egalitarian movement. You know, it's an interesting question as to whether or not something like that could have happened in Europe certainly wouldn't have happened exactly in the way it happened in the United States. But there's something about the freshness and lack of tradition in the United States that allowed something like transcendentalism to happen easier. And I, I just have to say this or my mother will will kill me. The Alcott lady is the little woman author. And my mom, that's my mom's favorite book. So um, I just just had to throw that in there. So next time we're reading it, I'll have to see if I can see any um, transcendentalist themes in there, which raises me to a, a, a good question. I think a lot of people are, like you mentioned, you know, I think a lot of people are more familiar with transcendentalism in, in their kind of English classes um, as, as a literary movement instead of a philosophical one. I've never seen, a, I, maybe it's just Rice Philosophy Analytic Department, but, but I've never seen... Um, any transcendentalist philosophy courses. So how would you how would you consider this? Would you consider it more as a philosophical literary movement or both? Yeah, so this is a great question. I mean, you're gonna run into these people in your literature class. So, you know, is this is this philosophy? Well, I think the transcendentalist aspect related to religion is very metaphysical. And certainly that can be approached and I think treated actually, by the transcendentalist philosophically. It is always kind of an interesting thing to think about. You have Henry David Thoreau, who's sometimes called a philosopher, but also called a, a naturist. Uh, Emerson was, I mean, if you look that guy up on Wikipedia, it's going to say, he was a philosopher, a naturalist, an essayist, and a lecturer. You know, it's like, okay. Um, so, <laughs> and they do write beautifully. Uh, and a lot of your, uh, well, we already mentioned, mentioned Alcott, uh, but a lot of other writers of the transcendentalist era were really exceptional writers. And Emerson writes this essay called The American Scholar, which has been referred to as uh, America's literary declaration of independence. You know, one of the things that, that, the, that Emerson was, was trying to do is is establish American authors, American writers, thinkers, philosophers, all of it as being equal to European thinkers. 
I mean, at this time, there was a real prejudice from Europe that American thinkers just weren't good enough. Like American thinkers were just a bunch of backwoods folks over here, and uh, they don't have that centuries of tradition that we talk about with European thought. And he basically says, for lack of a better term, we're as good as you guys. And <laughs> and so there is a, a real emphasis here on literature. So is it a philosophy? I mean, that kind of goes back to the question of like, well, what is a philosophy? Uh, it was definitely, it was definitely an intellectual movement. D- does that make it philosophy? Actually, I'm going to throw that back to you. What do you think, Andrew? Like, is it, what is the difference if there is one between an intellectual movement and philosophy? Well, I think philosophical movements, <laughs> I think they overlap in a lot of ways. I'm thinking of, of Voltaire, for instance, who's writing around this time, who was definitely a philosopher to a lot of a lot of people back then. I know this. There's this really famous story of Benjamin Franklin at Voltaire's deathbed talking about how great of a philosopher he was. But I also think now, you know, we we, we think of Candide. Um, that's certainly like a, a very philosophical, but also literary work too. This seems to be a recurring question that we have on this podcast where we're talking about this. And I think there's some overlap. I think there's there can be a lot of different styles on writing. Writing and probably purpose too. I think philosophers often have a, a very niche purpose where their argument is something that they're very in front of, that they're arguing towards the entire time. I think if you mix that in the literary setting, I think it's kind of like a, a big gumbo pot where you're playing with the idea and the story. Um, I read this great quote from John Rawls. I think it was it was all, either Rawls or Nozick. I think it was Rawls, um, where he says, maybe it was Nozick. It doesn't matter. Anyway, one of them said that philosophers, when they write, for the past 2,000 years, they assume that their argument is true. And I think that's something that in kind of a literary work, it's not as not as as much on the forefront as kind of allowing these ideas to kind of ruminate and, and play be played with. So I think there's some slight differences, but maybe not a huge difference. What, I've kind of rambled on for a while. So what do you think about <laughs> that? I mean, I think it's I think you're you're on target. It's you know for for me when I read Emerson's Nature, I can definitely read it from a from a literary literary criticism standpoint right it is beautifully written <laughs> i think i have so mm-hmm. many quotes so on my phone you know i have this app and i keep quotes in it and i've i've got almost 700 in there now and if i search emerson in that in that app uh i mean there's probably like 50 quotes that come up like he's just can write just such beautiful beautiful phrases <laughs> but also at the same time when you read nature he makes philosophical arguments, and I think he goes about it in a philosophical manner. So in that way, I think Emerson's nature is very philosophical. I think some of his other essays, like Circles, is a really wonderful essay that is very metaphysical, which is certainly could be considered philosophical. Emerson was an idealist. He was a Platonist. And I think from that perspective, yeah, it can be, it can be philosophical. But it was also a literary movement. I don't know. <laughs> it's a really it's a, this is a tricky question. This is this is why I wanted to discuss it because I, I guess I guess maybe everyone's picking up on it. I'm kind of torn on it. 
mm-hmm. I, I definitely think trans, you know, a lot of people will say as far as American philosophy goes, pragmatism, uh, which, which we had an episode on earlier in the series, pragmatism is usually cited as America's first unique contribution to philosophy. Mm-hmm. And so when I think about that, and then I think, I think about that phrase, and then I, I think back to transcendentalism, I'm like, well, why isn't transcendentalism considered the first unique contribution to, to philosophy from the United States? And I don't know an answer for that. I think it's, uh, I, I, d- I do understand how pragmatism is a more fully fleshed out philosophy and how transcendentalism is more ecstatic and kind of rhapsodic in its in its writing like it's very very romantic you know romantic in its in the way it it presents its arguments lots of very powerful language um very infused with emotion and i I don't know if that takes away from it i don't know if that makes it not philosophy you know when you go with the old idea that philosophy has to be kind of this dry analytic you know, investigation of of claims and all that sort of stuff. Uh, transcendentalism makes plenty of claims, uh, but do they <laughs> do they go about proving them in an analytic way? No, they go about proving it in a in a romantic way. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, it's it's probably something that like future philosophers like Nietzsche uh, would certainly call philosophy. It's very similar to his kind of writing, his passionate writing. But then some people don't want to consider Nietzsche a philosopher. So, <laughs> so there you go. I don't think I answered that at all that's okay we're we're still we don't have all the answers but we're trying to find trying to find some that's right all right so i have one last question for you as as tradition dictates i have to ask if someone's getting interested in transcendentalism where would they start where should they start in terms of reading or oh, oh that's such? easy i know walden gets a lot of acclaim but for me, uh, Emerson is the more insightful and enjoyable read. I like Thoreau, but I would, so, so if you're interested to, to read more on transcendentalism, I would just simply hop on Amazon and type in Emerson's Nature, and you're going to get a Penguin Classics book that comes up that says Emerson's Nature and Other Selected Essays. And there's <laughs> no better place to start than that. All of Emerson's great, great essays are there. His Dressed to the Harvard Divinity School, lectures in there, circles is in there, you know, the American scholars in there. That's a fantastic place to start. Emerson uses, he, you know, he wrote at the beginning of the 19th century. So some of the language is a little, a little antiquated, but I think very accessible and very enjoyable and inspirational. So how about that? There's my, there's <laughs> my recommendation. <laughs> All right. Well, this was a really good discussion. I've been looking forward to this episode since we decided to do this podcast, so I hope that everyone had a great time. But before we go, as tradition dictates, once again, let's head over to the Quote Corner. Okay, everybody. Uh, Well, you know, Andrew said, as tradition dictates, of course, the transcendentalist would tell us to create our own (laughs) traditions. But anyway... Welcome, everyone, to the Quote Quarter, a portion of our show where we uh, take a quote completely out of context and apply <laughs> our philosophical scrutiny to it and then give it an arbitrary rating on a one to five stars. Uh, today is my week, and I actually chose a non-philosopher. 
for this quote, but I thought it was a very philosophical thing that the quote talks about. So this quote's actually from Bob Iger. If you don't know who he is, he was the former CEO of Disney. Um, He just resigned from that position about a year ago. And anytime there's new management, you know, people always question new, new ideas and stuff. So anyway, Iger's quote was this. In a world and business that is awash in data, it is tempting to use data to answer all of our questions, including creative questions. I urge all of you not to do this. So, there it is. Andrew, my friend, what do you think? I think this is pretty, well, I think this is pretty ridiculous coming from a guy who probably has thousands of consultants working from for him, pouring over data. But I think like, I think in the day-to-day, probably personal life experience, it's probably a good good thing to come by. Maybe not when you're running a business or, or something that requires a bit more effort. But I think for you know, for your day-to-day life, if you're trying to calculate all these decisions, you're just gonna have a bad life. Um, there's this really funny but sad story. I was taking this psychology class and there was this story of this guy who got the emotional part of his brain removed. He was having seizures in that area, so they had to remove it. Everybody always says that you know we should take away our emotions when making decisions. But, and I guess this is kind of like a Spock guy, right? No, no emotions at all. But this person could not make any decisions at all. They, they couldn't decide if they should pick up a, a red pin or a blue pin, black pin. They kept weighing the options, weighing all the data because they didn't have that tug in their gut. And they, I guess they couldn't listen to it. So um, I think they drove themselves insane. And I think they killed themselves. So too many words for saying it's it's pretty important to listen to your emotion sometimes. That tug in your gut is is very important. So I don't agree with him from a business perspective, but I agree with him on a personal perspective. <laughs> All right, that's interesting. Yeah, so so I get your argument from a business perspective. Uh, the reason I think it's interesting with him is that of course he's was in the business of creating magic for people right? That's Mm. Disney. And uh, you would hope it wouldn't be too data driven because (laughs) it does take something away from the creative process, right? And so that's where I'm going to come with my particular angle. So obviously everyone knows this, uh, I'm in education. And in education, especially in the last 20 years, there's been an increasing emphasis on data. They call it data-driven decisions. And even in our own particular subject areas, based on testing data, we go on sometimes what's called data digs which is as miserable as it sounds. And so we make decisions on what we do in the classroom based on student data. And I don't like that. (laughs) Sorry, boss, if you're listening. I I, I really disagree with that. Can Can data provide us some very important information about how students are performing on particular tasks and knowledge areas? Well, yeah, of course. Do you design your entire curriculum, your future curriculum and instruction based around that? No, because students aren't data. Students are human beings. And human beings have all kinds of things that you can't quantify going on with them. And there's something to be said for like education and teaching being an art versus a science. Uh, You have to react to what's going on in the classroom. 
organically, and all these kind of things that, frankly, a, a lot of times data pulls you away from, and you end up going down particular roads because you think the data is leading you there, when really what you're doing is sucking the life out of classroom and out of teaching. And I don't. I think in a lot of cases, that's not beneficial. Data has its uses. Data definitely has its uses in education and in business, but you can't entirely rely upon it to make decisions. All right, so Par- what's- Parsons soapbox. <laughs> <laughs> Down with data. <laughs> <laughs> so, oh, I just caught you in the middle of a drink, but um, what's, what's, your, what's your end rating going to be? I'm giving this four and a half stars. <laughs> Down with data. <laughs> that can be our first merch line merch for the show um unless we're talking about commander data from star trek next generation then no I'm no not. keep him we like him <laughs> i will give it 3.9 stars can't give it the four but i like it i appreciate that <laughs> all right marvelous well I think that's it. Here we go. All right, everybody, that's going to be about it for today's episode on transcendentalism. Thank you so much for spending your time with us today. Really appreciate it. We'd love it if you'd leave a positive review and hit that subscribe button whenever you listen to podcasts so you know that when the new episodes drop and pass it on to your friends because how do I link this with transcendentalism? It's tradition. Ah, pass it on to your friends to keep the tradition going. We'd really love to hear from you. If you'd like to tell us what you think of the show, have a question that you'd like us to discuss, or a topic for that matter, or a philosophy quote you'd like for us to rate, please email us at opendoorphilosophy at gmail.com. Do it. You can follow all the philosophy on Twitter and Instagram and our website at opendoorphilosophy.com where you can find the so many things about the show, including our book lists. And uh, we'll certainly post the link for the Emerson book I mentioned earlier. Once again, thank you to Kevin McLeod for the free use of his really groovy music we use in the intro and the outro. Thank you so much for listening. We'll see you next time. And remember, when your life seems in need of some philosophy, the door is always open.